Welcome to the Misfit Stars Podcast. <laughs> I'm Shannon Curtis. <laughs> and I'm Jamie Hill. Uh, happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> it's Halloween week, which sadly means it's the last week that we can use the coffin-shaped noisemaker. Oh, I'm sure you're really sad about that. We'll get a lot of use out of it this episode. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be a very spooky episode. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So, hi, everyone. Welcome. We're happy you're here. Hi, Shannon. Hello. Nice to see you on the couch across from me here. <laughs> I really look forward to our podcast time, you oh, know? Oh, me too, for sure. When I say happy to see you, I really, it's not just because like, <laughs> it's not like I haven't seen you. I only <laughs> ever see you. You're whom I see. But Always. it's really contextual. It's that I like to see you here because yeah. we're doing this together. Yeah. Oh, same. I love this date every week. It's, it's, it's a good date. Highlight of my week. Yeah, mm-hmm. like really recommend it for couples. Just do a podcast. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> record yourself talking about things that matter most to you weekly. Yeah, absolutely. Spend a ton of time on sound design and editing. Teach yourself Pro Tools. <laughs> it's a really nice way to really double down on your relationship, I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie Hill, engineer therapist. Whoa, whoa, yeah. Whoa. Uh, he takes an oddly Pro Tools-centric approach to his yeah, work, yes, but it's really been I effective. Love technology. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but not as much as you, you see. It's really you. Like, it's you. Yeah. Anyway, okay. All right, people. Thanks for being here. We're happy you're here. Later on in this episode, we are continuing our mini-series on sobriety and recovery. Woo! And this week, we're going to do the middle part of my story. The middle part of James. It's like the, it's like the second book of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. The middle part. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really getting into like the deep adventure. Yeah. In, in that metaphor, we're kind of ignoring uh, The Hobbit. But, oh, you know, that's, sorry about that. You know, yeah. that's, that's okay. Uh-huh. I get it. It's okay. I get it. First, though, people, we would like to invite you, dear listener... To support our work. Yes. You can do that at misfitstars.com slash support. We're a kind of a listener-funded situation That's here. That's what it is. That's really what it is. Our podcast is the most obvious, ongoing manifestation of our work, but there are so many others. I've been mentoring an absolute ton of people. Shannon was on the phone with an independent artist last night for over an hour explaining how to get set up on ASCAP uh, so they can start collecting royalties from the songs that they're about to put out in the world. You know what I mean? This is the hands-on work that we do on an ongoing basis. We put stuff out into the world to hopefully, you know, engage you and enrich your life and, you know, and interest you and stimulate you. Some of it's music, some of it's podcast but then also, and by the way, did and you see the live uh, concert this weekend? Oh my gosh. Some of it is like live, free virtual concert on YouTube. That was funded by the Misfit Stars That's community. Right. And then some of it, you know, isn't as publicly facing, but it's no less important. It's all the stuff that we do with other artists to help mentor and encourage and support them on their journeys. We do a lot of sobriety work with people. We just do stuff with people to hopefully like make their world and the world at large a better place. Yeah, with the specific tools, talents, and you know, areas of expertise we have. That's it. That's it. And and also, you know, this is, this is the, the way that this train keeps rolling down the road is... The trains don't go on roads, sweetheart. Oh, excuse me. The track. Yeah. The tra- train keeps rolling down the track. Yeah. Is the support of our community. Like, this is not... We're not funding all these activities with a trust fund because no. we don't have one. I wish we did. <laughs> I want to be really clear about yeah. that. If I had a trust fund, I'd be stoked. It would be just like a pile of money. And it's a... It's yeah. a it's a boatload of work. So it's not like we're funding these activities as like side quest hobbies while we have like some high paying corporate job because no. there's not time 
time for all of that. No. This is, you know, this work consumes us, you know, and, and it takes out all of our time and energy. Um, but the reason that we're able to do it and still live indoors and eat food mm-hmm. is that our supportive community actually with with dollars supports the work that we do. Yeah. They are a group of people who have said what these two people are doing, Jamie and Shannon in the world, is important and valuable enough to me that I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and give a little bit each month to make sure they can keep doing it yeah. and to expand it mm-hmm. and to, you know, whatever ideas that come, you know, from their work they want to explore, well, I want to support them getting to explore those ideas to do more of what they do in the world. So if you are one of those people and you're like, yes, I actually do value and find important the stuff that Jamie and Shannon are doing, and I want to be part of making that happen. That's what this invitation is. It's mm-hmm. misfitstars.com slash support. When we say small dollar, like it's choose your own adventure. You could do like five bucks a month. It'd be the, the equivalent of like buying one of us a fancy coffee once a month. <laughs> like not even that fancy. Like I wouldn't even be able to get like oh, a milk. Trenti oat milk <laughs> caramel <laughs> Quad yeah. shot and latte. We're not using all this money do, for, for I, coffee, obviously, but it's just a, you know, it's just. Imagine if literally we were just taking every single thing we got from the support of our community and spending it at Starbucks. Oh, that'd gosh. be amazing. That would be. That'd be way too much Starbucks. It's, uh, yeah, we would probably be dead yeah. with all the caffeine. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Misfitstars.com slash support. Um, our community is amazing. By getting yourself into that support community, you'll get to meet more of these people. I saw I saw this uh, meme somewhere. Oh, man. Uh, our friend Lori Jacobson posted this on Facebook yesterday. And it said something to the effect of... Um, uh, you're not strangers with someone uh, who has the same favorite band. Yeah. Or something like that, you know? And and we're not a band. Jamie and I aren't a band. But, like, this is the thing. Like, when you become a member of Misfit Stars, you get to meet other Misfit Stars, which means you're going to meet other people who also find valuable the kind of stuff that we're trying to make happen in the world, you're going to automatically meet a whole bunch of other like-minded people. And They're really hooray good people. for you. Because, yeah. like, it's just, it's a wonderful community of people. Yeah. Yeah. All right, people, misfitstars.com slash support. Thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the misfitstars.com slash support sound. I love it. It's like an audio tag. Yeah, it's I very good. It. So, uh, announcements. Oh, announcements, announcements, announcements. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's just two yes. announcements this week. The first big one is that, oh my goodness, 202101 is out in the world. Yeah. Hooray! Oh, very scary. Um, it came out last Friday. It is now available for you to stream wherever you stream music. Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, Pandora. Tidal, go nuts. Any, anywhere you stream music, you will find 202101. And we want to encourage you in this announcement to, if you haven't listened to it yet, just go pull it up. Listen to it while you're making dinner or while you're brushing your teeth, getting ready for bed. Or put I don't it on know your, when. Put it on your Peloton. Put it on your Peloton. Whoa, yeah, you can do that. Yeah. Totally. Um, you can listen. Uh, we'd love for you to listen. I would love for you if you if you have thoughts to share with us what you think. Yes. I'm, Unless I'm, they're negative thoughts, in which case, honestly, <laughs> keep them to yourself. I know. Yeah. I can take it. I can take it. No, here's the thing. I'm really proud of this record. Like, I really love this record. And I so I really want you to listen. It would mean a lot to me if you did. And here's something that you can do to help. You could add this record to your playlists wherever mm-hmm. you listen, wherever you stream music. Just add it so that the songs will pop up 
just at random times. And they will, they will, you know, you'll hear them, you'll listen to them. But also, uh, it helps us on the back end when we, we rack up those those streams. It's it's good for us to have Absolutely. more streams. So add those, add the album to your playlist, share it with people if you really like it. It really does encapsulate so much of what all of us went through in the year 2020. Mm-hmm. All the songs are based on stories that I collected from all of you about your experiences. And um, and so, you know, I think in I I hope that in some ways as a lot of us are still kind of processing what we went through in 2020. Like, I mean, some of the stuff that we went through then we're still going through now yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways. But, you know, this is, it was a, it was a pretty massive year uh, in terms of like just a, a variety of like highs and lows and lots of lows and <laughs> just tough stuff. Like, like I think it's going to take a, a, some time for all of us to process what we experienced, you know? I hope that this record will be of service to you in that that you will be able to listen to it and identify the experiences you had with some of the experiences in the songs and realize that there were other people who went through the same kinds of things that you did and maybe just help you kind of work through it. You know, as I listen to it, honestly, that's one of the things I take away. I get to the song before slash after and like it talks about like letting go of some of the things we realized wasn't working for us before this all happened and wanting to embrace new things that we discovered. And like, I find myself really like meditating on that idea, you know, and, and, and it being helpful to me in terms of like, it's okay to let old stuff go. That's mm-hmm. all right, you know, and, and, and when we do that, we make room for the new stuff, you know, and, I, and I, when I listen to that song, you know, it's, I wrote the song and I wrote the song based on your stories, but like it's continuing to be helpful to me personally mm-hmm. in reminding myself that I can, I can let go and welcome new things. Yeah. You know, so listen and stream and add it to your playlists and thank you. And also hopefully enjoy. And you know, Shannon can't say this about herself and her record, but I can. To me, this is Shannon's first great record. She has put out a bunch of really, really good records over the years. Uh, Her records are only ever at minimum very good in my opinion. But this, I think, is her first truly like great record. It's just of a different level. And I think it's really, really extra super good well thank you mm-hmm. and and also passed me as like what the <laughs> you just did better i'm just kidding and I'm that's really totally great kidding. like you keep getting better at what you're doing no, of course i want to be, i want to continue yeah. to challenge myself and get better absolutely so i think but that's good and there's an extra encouragement for you listeners and second announcement personal songs we are still uh signing people up to do personal songs for the holidays uh And it's going great. Uh, We have some really, really nifty personal song projects on our plate now ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And we're really excited about it. It There's still plenty of time for you, though, if you're listening, uh, to sign up to get Shannon to write a song about a loved one for you to give to them as a gift Mm -hmm. for the holidays. Mm -hmm. It is just the best thing in the entire world. We're going to spotlight another personal song a little bit later on in this episode, and it's fantastic. We're so excited to share it with you, and we'll talk more about it then. Sounds good. How are you feeling today, sweetheart? (sighs) I feel good. I feel unburdened. Mm -hmm. Uh, because the last week leading up to our virtual concert on Saturday night was just very hectic and there was a lot of uncertain things about new technology that we were exploring with the streaming, the virtual concert, and Mm -hmm. it just was a lot to 
manage. Yes. But it's done. And yeah. it went great. Yeah. And I feel like a big, my feeling is that I, my whole body embodies this big, huge sigh of relief. <laughs> that oh, it's that's great. over and that it went well. <laughs> so I'm still writing that feeling today. Uh, this is, we're recording this on Monday. So it's a couple days past the concert. And I'm still like really just feeling like, it feels good. Good. How about you? How are you feeling? Generally great. Yeah, pretty good. I had a, I always have a slightly, uh, there's a menu of different options of experiences that you can have right after a big thing like that is done. Yeah. And I've been experiencing, experiencing a little bit of an emotional hangover. Oh yeah. I had that on uh, like Saturday night after the concert was over. Mm-hmm. I had it. Yeah. yeah. You sure, you sure did. Um, and it's fine. Like I'm, I'm used enough to doing this kind of work that I am used to it. But I don't feel like great, like bouncing off the walls full of energy. Mm. I'm happy. Uh, I think we did a great job. I definitely uh, just feel a little quiet and a little not not like deflated mm. in a bad way, mm-hmm. but just like I had to get so full of energy yes. and focus and adrenaline to get this thing off the ground. It was really really difficult. Yeah, it was a technically challenging project. Yeah. So we couldn't talk about it on last week's podcast because we didn't want to do spoilers. But now that it's out in the world, I can tell you, uh, like it, it was an hour long, like 55 minute long, single shot with seven scene changes and like over 10 different lighting cues, manual <laughs> lighting cues. Yeah. It was an absolute ton. Like we rehearsed this thing like it was a goddamn theater production. Well, because it kind of we were running yeah. we were running those transitions just over and over and over. We just like set up for the transition, do the transition, yeah. rewind, set up for it again, do it again. We do yeah. it three, four, five times in a row. Okay, that one we got. Okay, let's do the next one. And there's seven of them. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It was just an astonishing amount mm-hmm. of prep. And then just starting to run parts of the show and then the whole show. It was really like bringing a theater thing up to speed. Yeah. But also like with that combined like like live performance and live sound aspect aspect of it also yeah. mm-hmm. you know like the bare minimum was that we had to hit all the technical cues, but then within that framework, Shannon also had to deliver top-notch performances <laughs> without fucking anything up. You know what I mean? Really, really difficult to do, to like have all of those things go right at the same time for something of that sustained length. Yeah, it was a live experience. Yeah, that was, yeah that's, yeah. So it, it was. it was like... It was a combination of walking a tightrope and holding our breath for days and days preparing for this, you know. And even though it went really, really great, yeah. Like I, I so am with you with the even when when even when the thing that you've been you know holding your breath for and walking the tightrope for for days goes really well, yeah. as I think this did. Yeah. There's still a crash after that. We experience it when we're when we're able to tour too. Yep. Like we come home from a super successful tour and like you know got to meet and see all kinds of loved people all over the country and share music with them in their backyards. And like, it is the best thing ever. And then always we come home from that and there's a little bit of a depression sort of. Almost. You know, and, and I'm not saying like emotional depression. I mean, like just like, like a, like a, like a. Like a lack of energy that was there before. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, and Like that, if the, if that was the baseline, if that was the flat terrain. Yeah. Now there's just like a hole where that was. Exactly. Like a literal depression. Like a depression in the ground. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So like, and that that takes that just requires or, or brings to the fore different emotional experiences, kind of kind of to navigate that. And <laughs> <laughs> so I totally understand. Yeah. And I was and I have felt that this weekend too, post concert yeah. as well. So 
Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? Uh, it's all good. I also feel an equal measure of relief. Yeah. You know, because not only is it just done and we don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. Also, it was awesome. Like it came yeah. off really, really well. Yeah. And placed. I think a whole ton of people were like really pleasantly surprised. That like, was different. Yeah. And in a really positive way, yeah. too. Uh, and so, like, if you haven't seen this, listener, I just want you to, like, know that, like, this isn't Shannon sitting at a piano just, like, playing songs and singing, like, always. It's completely different. Mm -hmm. It is full production with lighting and huge sound and... Me free from the piano for most of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's really, really cool. Yeah. There is a replay of it up right now on YouTube, and we'll get a high-def version up. Like, you can only go so high-definition with streaming because there are bandwidth issues. Yeah. But we, we all also captured it in real time as like a high definition yeah. uh, video and audio and we're going to upload that version of it in the next few days also so there will be like an HD on YouTube and we'll send out the link to that too. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Shall we fire up the good news machine? Hell yeah. What do you have? What's your good news? Mine is, uh, it's national news. Okay. And it's that the Justice Department launched this last week a new effort to target discriminatory lending among banks. Well, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that the Justi uh, Justice Department's Civil Rights Division will work with U.S. attorney's offices across the country, as well as with regulators at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And CFPB, what, mm -hmm. what? Go Elizabeth Warren. And, and also the Treasury Department. So these three agencies are going to be working together in a concerted way to investigate and prosecute banks for biased lending. Isn't biased lending already illegal? Well, here's the thing. This is basically just ensuring that federal fair lending laws are rigorously enforced. Because, uh. yeah, they're already on the books. But there has been lax enforcement because who has captured the enforcers? The banks have. Right. And Merrick Garland, the current attorney general, is basically saying we're not going to be held captive by the financial institutions anymore, we're actually going to hold them to the letter of the laws that regulate their behavior. Mm. You know, they've got the the Justice Department's civil rights, uh, the civil rights department's um, head. Is it Kristen Clark? Is that her name? I, yeah, I think, I think that's right. There's some really badass people leading that division of the of the Justice Department. So this is probably the, some of their work, which is awesome. Yeah, and there, really there are good. actual enforcers in this administration, which is really nice. Amazing. Like, they're actually doing antitrust enforcement uh, at, 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 in a different department. Like, it's, it's revolutionary. Imagine like, that the corporations don't have a stranglehold on every aspect of the government. I mean, I, there's still areas in which that clearly yeah. they, they, It's only most of the areas yeah. now. <laughs> but it's not all of them, and hey, that's something. Baby steps. Very good. That's good news. It is good news. Because, uh, you know, we think of redlining as something that happened in the, in the you know, 40s and 50s. Right. It still happens. Right. And we need it not to happen. And the thing I love the most about this piece of good news, mm. this is anti-racism at work. Yeah. This is because the way anti-racism works, right, is that you, you take a racist policy and you turn it into an anti-racist policy. Policy is never neutral. It's either working against racism or it's racist. Right. That's it. Those are the two choices. It's very binary. And so the way this stuff has been working, has been working, has been very racist. And this is an explicit concerted effort uh, on the part of the Justice Department and the CFPB and the Treasury Department to actually turn this into mm. anti-racist work. That's awesome. I'm sure that's not how they're framing it, but this that's what this is. Oh, I'm And it's sure really cool. I imagine there are actually people in who are doing this work that do frame it that way. Probably so. I, I, I'm 100%. And I think that's cool. It's very cool. What's in your good news machine? Well, my good news machine is uh, in environmental in nature. And oh. the Biden administration um, 
is has launched this three-year plan to regulate what they call forever chemicals. Have you mm-hmm. heard of those? I have. There are these com- these chemicals, PFAS, is that, how, is that like the... P- They're PFAs, PFAs, and that stands okay. for polyfluoroalkyl substances. Well, thank you. Uh-huh. But forever chemicals, these things don't degrade. They never well, leave. Well, I mean, they just... it's like 5,000 years. Right, okay. But like essentially forever. For, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you consider that the, the, the average human lives to be about like, you know, 78 years old or whatever, right. it's essentially forever. Essentially forever. Ever. Yeah. yeah, but these chemicals don't, they don't leave. They they stick around and they are harmful. Yeah. They have been linked to serious health problems like cancer and uh, reproductive harm and damage to the immune system. Mm-hmm. And so like they're, the government is doing some, this administration is doing something to to regulate those, i.e. make it so that people can't use them in the products that we use anymore. And and it's mostly cosmetic products. Is it really? Yeah, oh, totally. Wow, I didn't they, know that. They increase a product durability, spreadability, and wearability. So like, you know how you have that makeup that lasts all day. But gives you cancer. Yeah, <laughs> and kills your immune system and kills the environment and, you know. Right. That's the trade-off, you yeah. know. Well, it's, it's wild because this is one of those things that like, you know, it's it's something that the federal government can do that the individuals really can't do a whole lot to to mitigate the kinds of effects that these things have on our environment at yeah. large. Like it's not something that we can individually fight. No. <laughs> this is something that we have to do as a collective, which we do often through our elected representatives in our government. That's yes. how like collectivism is like that's that's how collectivism acts in a democracy, yeah. ideally, is that the the elected officials do the kinds of work for all of us that we can't do just as individuals on our own. Yeah. Individualism does not solve this kind of a problem. No. We have to work as a collective. Yes. So hooray. Good Yay. job, us. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So uh, what adventures did we get into of this last week? Boy, not a lot because this damn concert... It was really? pretty much just getting ready for the concert. It was pedal to the metal, like 14-hour days. Let's focus on the concert every hour of every day. Yeah, sorry for the people in my inbox that just didn't get a response until today. You know, I will say that we had a Misfit Stars after party for the concert, and that was awesome. It was awesome. Oh my gosh, that was so great. All the people in this community are so wonderful, and there were so many of them. We had like great. almost 25 people show up, and like... I thought it was going to last for like 45 minutes, an hour. Like, it was damn close to three hours. It was. It was wonderful. It was just everyone was just talking and talking and talking, and the conversation was just wide-ranging and super interesting. Mm-hmm. It just flowed naturally, and everyone I, is so interested in one another. Yeah, I heard so many people as we were signing off at the end, I'm so glad I came and got to know some of you better. You know, like, yeah. it was really wonderful to hear that. There were definitely some people getting to know each other who hadn't been on the same, like, Zoom events before. Yeah, it was neat. Yeah. I love our community you so can, much. You can join this community, by the way, listener. You know that? Like, that's just a thing you can <laughs> invite into your life. Misfitstars.com slash join. You'll be supporting our that's work right. by doing it. Thank you so much. Yes. So is it personal song spotlight time? Yeah, let's do that. Oh, man. So do you want to set this one up? Uh, yes. Okay, so this week, this is week five already of our 12 weeks of personal song spotlights. Wow, how exciting. Um, this, uh, this week's song is a song called A Letter. Mm-hmm. And I wrote the song um, a few years ago at the holidays uh, for a woman who wanted to give uh, a song to her three very young daughters. She had like three daughters under five, right? Um, I don't remember how old the oldest one was at the time, but they were they were all you know young, single yeah. single digit ages for yeah. sure. Um, so they wanted, she wanted to give it to her three young daughters and their father. 
Um, and hmm. this was a time in her life in which she was really wrestling with like who she is, yeah. what she wanted in her life. And it was, as you can imagine, a somewhat turbulent time for her family yeah. because of that. And yet she expressed to me that she wanted to communicate in this song the abiding love and the eternal kind of bond she felt with each of them, hmm. even in the midst of all that, sort of a declaration of that core truth while the rest of their lives were sort of swirling in a bit of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what a vulnerable place to be, you know, just to begin with. And it, people go through these kinds of things, right? Like personal change and, you know, we, we, we struggle with our... our our emotional well-being and our our identities and like you know we we go through stuff people go through stuff constantly and we're, we're not go, static yeah and we go through stuff even when we're connected to other people in a family that you know our stuff then ripples out and affects them like it's a pretty it's a pretty vulnerable place to be to begin with but i have so much admiration and gratitude mm-hmm. for her sharing those vulnerable parts of of her life with me and trusting me to help her communicate that love and that bond um, that she wanted to communicate yeah, to her it's a people. Big deal. Yeah, it it's was, a lot of responsibility. Yes, and, and like I was blown away when I heard this song. Like that, you managed to do it, but but also to me, like with a lot of grace. Mm, thank you, know? you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, uh, perhaps grace is what defines being in the midst of such an uncertain, vulnerable time, and having the 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 strong desire to communicate that core truth of love and bond with your family. You know, like that's, there's, there's grace in that. All I really had to do was honor that in the song. And I, Mm -hmm. I, um, I think that we got to where we needed to get to. I'll, I'll tell you later what her response was to the song, but we, we should play it for him now. All right, here it is. A letter. Shoulders bearing the whole globe. 
heard that one in a minute and mm-hmm. boy that is to me a powerful song you know what i love about it is it feels very meditative yeah you know i find myself really kind of uh at first like really fixating there's a very obvious musical thing in there for me which is that there's that one note that just gets repeated over and over mm-hmm. and over it's like it doesn't really ever change throughout mm-hmm. the entire song and it's interesting because like I find that at first I'm really like drawn to that note. Like, why is that note still there? (laughs) But then like, I really find it like just becoming almost like the background Mm -hmm. of the thing, you Mm -hmm. know, and really kind of being an anchor in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really lends itself. I think it just really creates a very overall backdrop, like meditative backdrop for the rest of the, the meditation on this family and all these relationships to kind of just exist. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I think it's that, like that note mm-hmm. is like that solid core truth. Mm. That's sort of the gravity that's keeping the rest of it all, you know, mm-hmm. circling around. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I love uh, in that third verse, I think it's a third verse when you say, this is a letter. No, it's a prayer. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I mm-hmm. think that's so nifty. What a cool way to like recontextualize all those feelings. Mm-hmm. And because like, you know, when you write a letter to yourself, that's really what it is. It's a prayer. Yeah. You know, because yeah. it's like a series of letters is how I imagine this yeah. song. I could be totally wrong about this, but in my <laughs> mind, it's like the, verse one is like a letter to the girls. Verse two is a letter to the dad. And verse three is a letter to herself. But yeah. what is a letter to yourself? It's a prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was a it was a real treat to get to, to do this song. Like I felt 
like I was stepping into a sacred place, mm-hmm. you know, with this woman, and um, it felt I felt very honored to do it, and I, she really she loved it. I, um, uh, uh, I got a series of messages from her over mm-hmm. the next couple of days. Mm-hmm. That often <laughs> happens she, too. Yeah. Like people start to like they listen to it more and discover new things. Yeah, the yeah. first thing she sent was just "I love you both." There are no words, mm. <laughs> and so I was at one point I'm like, "So you like the song?" You know, <laughs> and uh, she she then uh, like the next day said, "Okay, so we've all been on an emotional roller coaster today in a good way, and the letter a letter kept us connecting back in. Mm. We finished the bedtime." routine with it tonight (laughs) putting their little ones down for bed and she the last thing that she said was I feel reluctant to even say how much I love the song like it will reduce its beauty but damn it's good woman Mm. (laughs) so that felt really felt felt really good you know I I I felt um that she she was so open with me Mm -hmm. and allowed me the opportunity to see you know into her life in such a way that I could create something that reflected the depth of what she was experiencing and feeling for her people and that's really yeah. true with all these projects, right? The more yeah. people are willing to be open and vulnerable with you and just in the stuff that oh, they're yeah. typing to you over email mm-hmm. about the relationship, the better their song will turn out. <laughs> yeah. Really, because like you have more insight into the nuances mm-hmm. of the dynamic and then you can work your magic in those little nooks and crannies. Yeah. It's a real honor to be trusted with that task. Yep. It really is. Yeah. yeah. So people, uh, perhaps you have listened to that and you're like, oh my gosh, I want one of those for a loved person in my life. Well, you're right, you do. It's amazing. <laughs> it's the best gift there is. There's a reason that we started this well in advance of the holidays. Uh, because we had the opportunity to this year. Like, usually we're on tour until, like, right about now. Usually, like, the last week of October is when we're finishing up our massive, mm. you know, house concert tour. Because we can't do that this year, we have plenty of time to actually properly set this mm-hmm. up for the holidays so people actually have time to mm-hmm. think about it and ask Shannon for information and then get the project going and actually get it, like, in time for the holidays. Yes, I have which four is, on my docket already. It's so cool. Yeah. So, so if you want one for yourself, send Shannon an email at shannon at misfitstars.com and she'll just send you more info. Uh, it's not like a commitment or anything, but you can just be like, I'd like more information about this and she'll send it to you. So she'll send you the pricing and just like more about how it works and all of that. Yeah. And so if you're thinking about this, just do that to start with. And, you know, we still have some slots left. We budgeted in the time that we have allocated for this fall season, this autumn season, uh, space to do 10 songs. We have four firmly committed and another... Six available. Six available and another two potentials that are kind of out there, people thinking about it, you know? So, like, we're not fully booked yet, but it is ever increasingly (laughs) heading toward there. You've still got time, but, you know, don't delay. (laughs) Because you never know when there's going to be that little rush of people and all of a sudden... Oh, no, it's coming. We got to get this done. Yeah. Yeah, well, seriously. And, you know, you've got two months from today. Wow. It's the... Two months from today is Christmas Day. <gasps> We're recording this on the 25th. Yes, yes we are. So send me an email, uh, shannon at misfitstars.com, and I'll send you more information and the pricing, mm-hmm. and I would love to do this with you. Um, look forward to hearing from you. Awesome. Should we take a little break and then get back into your uh, sobriety, middle part of your sobriety story? That sounds great. Excellent. I can't wait. All right, we'll see you guys in a sec. <laughs>
the goblins. Yeah, that was very scary. It was. I'm very scared. Yeah, I know. Right well, now. don't be too scared. Okay. It's actually just a noisemaker. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're back. We're back with part the the middle part of your sobriety story, which I'm so excited to hear. Um, the the middle part of my recovery story was just so fun to share. Is that noisemaker still going? Is it, it is like. Or, Whoa. It, it, I, I, like, I put it under my leg. I think you were pushing it with your butt. And I think I must have... Yeah. No, I wasn't pushing it with my butt. I was face down, and it was under my leg, not my butt. But I think that I pushed it into the seat I'm sitting on with my leg, thereby depressing a button. So you, like, butt-dialed. I butt-dialed the coffin <laughs> noisemaker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Anyway, I was saying it was so fun for me to share the middle part of my recovery story, which we had to split into two parts because I had so much I wanted to talk about. Um, but just it's all the good, the good stuff. And so I'm, I'm so eager to hear all of your middle part good stuff, too. Yeah, and you know, I might do it differently than you. Great. Um, okay, great. Let's hear it. I'm structuring mine really in a classic AA share. Yeah. So that's, you know, it's a three-part share. It's what what it was like, what happened, and what it's like oh, now. Oh, okay, great. You know? All right. And so, you know, my middle part is the what happened. All right. And it's that sort of fulcrum point. It's that pivotal time yeah. when you kind of transition from the before time to the after time. Okay. You know? I'm so excited. Yeah. So when we last left our hero... I, that's me. Anti-hero? Yeah, at that time, really, yeah, yeah. Totally. I was not in a great place, yeah. right? I was, I was at the lowest part of my low. And uh, for, for listeners, too, if you're just tuning in, yes. like, if you want to hear that previous part, uh, definitely stop where you are right now in the podcast and go listen to Jamie's origin story. Yeah. Um, and that's a, an episode from, I think, three weeks ago at Just, this point. If you go to misfitstars.com slash listen and scroll down, it's literally called Jamie's origin story. There you we go. titled it explicitly. Usually we have like a pull quote as a title, but for Shannon's origin story and mine, we actually just called them that just so people could locate them very easily because they're important. Yeah. Okay. So you were saying. Yeah, things were bad. Yeah. Uh, I, was uh, so I, I had been with my college girlfriend until age 26 we broke up we had diverged we had gone different ways that relationship was kind of the one thing that mm. was keeping me like mm -hmm. tethered to the planet yes you know anchored in normative human societal behavior yeah and when you know when we parted ways she moved she moved out of the state and total side note but like this is great behavior for an ex everyone should do this like <laughs> you know this whole like bumping into each other around town thing that's for the birds like <laughs> she moved to, to like 2500 miles away she moved to Georgia you know yeah. what I mean I was living in San Francisco at the time um, and so really I had absolutely no fear of running into anybody around mm. town there was nothing tying me to my past at all mm. and I really use it as, as sort of an excuse to go all the way into all of the stuff that I was curious about. None of which was positive because I just had so many holes inside of me. I had so many things that I felt insecure about. Uh, I felt really insecure about uh, how cool I was. I felt really insecure about like my sexuality mm -hmm. and like my sexual like competence and desirability. Mm -hmm. Um I, and this manifested as me just doing a ton of drugs, drinking literally every single day. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, from the day she left until the day I got sober, there literally was not a day that I didn't drink. Mm. <laughs> uh, actually, it's funny, like close to the end, I actually did 
try to take six months off from drinking, oh. which is a classic sign that you have a huge drinking problem. <laughs> really? Like, oh, totally. Like normal people don't intentionally take time off from drinking. Mm. That's not a thing. Mm. Like if you are intentionally taking time off from drinking, that should be a massive red flag to you. Like even if like you are holding down a good job, you think everything's good. If you're at a place in your life with your relationship to alcohol where you're like, I'm going to take a dry January, you should really be thinking about that. Just want to throw that out there. Why do you say that? Because uh, normal people don't have to intentionally schedule time away from things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that that's you don't. Or a better way to put it, you don't have to intentionally schedule time away from something that you have a healthy relationship with. I see. That's not how that works. Yeah, I mean, is there a possibility for some people who who want to see what it feels like to not? Drink for a month or whatever. Sure, like, but, like, but you really have to ask yourself, why are you doing so much drinking that you're curious what it feels like not to do that? Yeah, that's a good question. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people do it for health, for like bodily health reasons mm -hmm. too. So, you know. Totally. Like, Again, you really have to examine your relationship with something that is so poisonous to your body that you need to take time off it for health reasons, but yet you feel compelled to do it to the point where taking time off it is an intentional okay. thing that you have to do. That's an interesting question. That's interesting. You know? Yeah. We have so much permissibility built into our society around alcohol mm. that it, I think, it gives people a permission structure to go way past what actually is a healthy relationship with this, like, dangerous and toxic chemical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, I think that it has just become normalized in so many nooks and crannies. The very fabric of certain parts of our social society mm -hmm. are built around alcohol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know? oh yeah, absolutely. And that I think has made it so that people are like, oh, it's normal. Well, yeah, I have a couple drinks each day. Sure. I mean, yeah, I might get drunk once a week. That's normal. It's not normal. Right. Well, and there's, <laughs> there's a lot of normalization around that. Um, I've noticed like a... a over the last number of years on social media, like with like the, like like wine mom type memes, oh you know, like I, like I'm a, like I'm exhausted. My kids are driving me crazy. Where's my wine? Or you know, like yeah. jokes about like how wine solves those problems of being overwhelmed and tired and burnt out. You know, yeah. like and I mean, it, yeah, it does provide a temporary fix, and I understand where those memes come from. But like, sure. you know, it is. You're right. It is a normalized coping mechanism for stuff that. Um, for which it's not necessarily a uh, prescription. Yeah, you know? no, it turns out that numbing your ability to confront your own emotions is not actually the best way to deal with your emotions. <laughs> and you're speaking from experience here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's hear, let's hear more of your experience. Yes, so the way that manifested, and this is just recapitulating a little bit, you know, what I talked about a few weeks ago, but I was just, uh, you know, I was getting massively fucked up every single night. Mm -hmm. That would be the most accurate and descriptive way to put it. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, and my behavior was getting increasingly out of bounds. And also, like, the more you engage in that kind of behavior and act that sort of way, two things happen. One, it's harder and harder to get your normal friends to go there with you. Like, maybe at the beginning, it's like, oh, man, Jamie's on kind of a party kick. Yeah, we'll go out drinking a few times. That's But, you know, after, like, the fifth or sixth like really like out on the edge experience a lot of your friends are like you know what actually I don't want to do this anymore this is like I was doing this for a month with you but like you clearly are on a different trip mm. so there's that and also like you just you need more extreme people to engage in more extreme behavior with right if you're built like I was you know because I was just pushing toward the extremes of these behaviors yeah. so I was just partying 
I was partying with increasingly fucked up people, uh, you know, and I was seeking lower and lower company in my life, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't forming relationships at a certain point based on positive character attributes that I, you know, things that I wanted to reinforce in myself. Mm -hmm. These days, I tend to make friendships based on, like, shared intellectual pursuits, yeah. you know? Yeah. Or maybe someone just seems like a good person whom I could learn from, yeah. you know? Those were not even considerations. I was just looking for people who I could call at, like, three in the morning when I was up on meth and, mm. like, maybe have sex or maybe they have more drugs or right. maybe they would at least just, like, party with me or whatever, you know? Right. Uh, and when I ran out of people like that, like I would literally just like drive around like the more dangerous parts of San Francisco, yeah. just like looking for like street prostitutes, like not even to do sexy stuff with, just like to do drugs with, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, which, uh, you know, was not safe behavior. No. Not safe behavior, not good behavior. Um, the, I, I guess the best way to put all of this is that at a certain point, uh, as I was getting closer to the end of my you know, drinking and drug career, I didn't have a moral compass guiding mm. my actions. Mm. It was really just what I thought I could get away with. Wow, uh-huh. You know, that was literally the only thing I was concerned about. Uh, I was screwing people over all of the time. Wow. Um, I would steal from people. Uh, like, if there was, like, money that I could take, I would take it to buy drugs. Mm. Um, if, uh, you know, it, like, I would sleep with people's wives mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, or partners. Uh, I would just do whatever I wanted to do in the moment. Mm -hmm. A lot of which wasn't really a conscious decision because like when you're that fucked up all the time, it's really much more of like a lizard brain like kind impulse of- impulse-based? Yeah, it's very like brainstem-based, like, mm -hmm. you know, behavior. Like you're not even really consciously thinking about judging it. You're just acting on impulse. Yeah, how does that make, like, did you have any feelings about those behaviors after the fact or in the moment? Like, did that, how did you feel about yourself? In the moment, I was just trying to accomplish goals. Sure. Uh, after the fact, uh, in, the, in the moments when I wasn't messed up, like, my mornings were terrible. Because uh -huh. like, typically, like, if I didn't wake up drunk, like, probably about half the time I woke up still drunk because I had drank so much, you know? Wow. Um, Sometime over the course, like I, for a while there, I was still employed. Right. Um, so I'd show up at my job still drunk, maybe do a bump of meth in the bathroom with my coffee, like, because coffee wasn't doing it by itself. Right. A little bump of meth will kind of get you alert, you know, um, sort of <laughs> a form of alert, you know. Mm. Uh, at a certain point in mid-afternoon, early afternoon, mid-afternoon, typically, I would uh, start to feel really, really, really bad about myself. I had a lot of paranoia. Mm. I had a lot of anxiety, like, mm. all of the time. Yeah. Uh, I had a really, really negative self-image, you know, mm. because when I was not actively engaged in those behaviors and when I was not actively engaged in acting like that, like, which was kind of like my nighttime self, mm -hmm. it was a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of thing, wow. you uh -huh. know? Um, the the daytime part of me was really appalled by what the nighttime part of me was doing. Wow. But also, it would get to be night again, you right. know? Well, and you could stop feeling shame about your nighttime self by doing more of the nighttime activities well, that's numbing the feeling, right? Well, that's exactly it. It's a yeah. really, really terrible cycle, you yeah. know? Shame, engage in shame-based behaviors yeah. uh, and then feel incredible amounts of shame over them and then re-numb myself to stop right. feeling the shame and then engage in more of the behaviors. Right. And it was just like around and around and around. Yeah. And get, it was just getting increasingly uh, extreme, mm -hmm. I guess would be a way to put it. Uh, 
I just kept having to do like greater amounts of drugs to get the effects that I was hoping for because you build up tolerances to these things. Right. I had done so much cocaine that like it really didn't have that much of an effect on me anymore, you know? Like it would get me high, but like I didn't feel that feeling like Superman thing that you feel yeah. when you first do it. Uh, and so I, you know, started doing meth and then like it was hard to get meth to make me feel the way I want. So I had to do more and like there's not mm. much beyond meth, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, sort of the end of the line as far as like extreme uppers go. Yeah. And I was doing enough of them that like I wasn't sleeping very much. And so like when I really needed to get to sleep, like if I've been up for two or three days without sleeping, oh, man. which I did at least once a week, wow. uh, you know, and that's where a lot of the bad decision making comes from. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's like the lack of sleep, you know, mm -hmm. um, I would take Valium to uh, to knock myself out so I could get some sleep. Uh, it's, a, it's a miracle that I didn't die of a heart attack. Yeah, right. Like when you combine those sorts of drugs in that way, that's a, often like a result. Yeah. Uh, heart damage, heart failure, that kind of thing. I didn't. Uh, I'm not sure why. I got really, really, really lucky. Um, you know, it was just... It was bad, it was terrifying, it was really, really scary. Uh, and the increasing velocity of it, the ever-increasing velocity of my behavior felt really out of my control. Mm -hmm. And it felt like it was headed in one direction and one direction only, which was death. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's what I presumed when I was like 30 would be the, the ultimate destination of all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I was kind of just waiting to die. I didn't necessarily want to, but mm -hmm. also I didn't see any other way of out of it. Like, I didn't see any way to change how I was feeling other than dying. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't feel like I had any amount of ability to divert course, right. you know, to get on a different track. That didn't feel like an option for me at all. Mm -hmm. um, I was so miserable. Mm -hmm. And I got to this point like toward the, at the end of my uh, drinking and using career where I was like in this real kind of, I'm not exactly a cash 22. Like I, I was just like in this impossible situation where like I was so miserable that the only option was for something to change. But I also felt completely out of control and therefore unable to effectuate any change. Mm -hmm. And I just, I was stuck. Like I was stuck in that tension mm -hmm. between those two things. And I just, I had no idea what to do at all. Like yeah. I was just trapped there. Yeah. I was just trapped and frozen in that place. Mm. But I wasn't frozen in an inactive kind of way. I was still very, very active in my addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I was drinking 20 to 30 drinks a day, every single day, mm -hmm. um, you know, and just doing whatever drugs I could get my hands on all of the time. Uh, it was terrifying. Uh, and I thought that the change that I would encounter would be death, mm -hmm. just because that's the only one I could see. It turns out that actually the change I did encounter was sobriety. What an amazing difference. <laughs> yeah, it, it was unexpected to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I want to just talk about the circumstances around how that happened for me because it was really, uh, it, it was really like unexpected. Um, so... Let's set the scene. Okay. So in 2003, I had gotten fired from my job that I'd had. I'd had my job for seven years. Mm -hmm. 
like it's hard to get fired from a corporate job you've had for seven years. But like I was showing up wasted all the time and doing meth at work, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it adds up. Um, ironically, when I got fired, I actually wasn't drinking. It was in that attempt to not drink oh, for six months time. So funny. I was, I, I recognized I had a problem. I was like, I've got to stop drinking. So I'm going to stop drinking for six months. Did it work? Did you just stop for six months? It was like five months in one week and then pretending for the last three weeks. Okay. <laughs> Um, but actually secretly drinking because <laughs> I just couldn't fucking handle it anymore. Yeah. I could barely handle it for the first five months and the only reason I could was because I was still doing cocaine and smoking a lot of pot. Oh, I see. And, okay. And also meth. <laughs> I was doing everything but drinking. Like I wasn't sober. I see. I wasn't even abstinent. I was just not drinking, but I was doing everything else. And let me tell you, one of the worst things in the world is doing cocaine and not drinking. <laughs> like you really need something, like there's an edge to that, you mm-hmm. know, or meth. Like there's an edge to it that a few drinks like really takes off. <laughs> Uh, so it was just like the worst of all possible worlds. That's why I was smoking pot. I didn't even enjoy smoking pot anymore at that point because it made me feel paranoid. Uh, but like I couldn't drink to take the edge off. So I was like, well, I'll smoke some pot with a meth. It was just, so that was funny. all over the place. It was a mess. All kinds of bargaining with yourself. Oh yeah. 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 Lots of devil's bargains there. Yeah. Uh, because I am a devious type of alcoholic, I managed to set myself up in a situation where I was collecting unemployment. Even though I had been fired for cause at Wells Fargo, wow. I, man- I called the unemployment department in California and managed to convince them that I had been wrongfully terminated. Uh, wow. I know. It was... It was it was heroic work. And so I was collecting <laughs> unemployment. Um, and Anti-heroic I, work. <laughs> yeah. I was employed on and off. Uh, you know, I had a contract for a little while. Mm-hmm. It was also with Wells Fargo. Like after firing me for cause, like it, a different department, like the home mortgage department hired me on a contract. Oh my gosh. Like, I don't know if those two computer systems didn't talk internally or whatever. Left like, hand not knowing what the right hand was doing. No, yeah. not at all. So I had another job where I could go like and drink and do meth at work and I did that Mm -hmm. Um, I had the sweetest situation like the job was in Pleasanton uh, and I did that for like six months and at the very end they got me my own office down on Townsend Street down by where the ballpark is now Mm -hmm. and uh, like it was literally my own office I had an office like I was a vice president like with a closing door and like its own air conditioning it was like really nice Uh, because I was working like in another department but they just had an extra space that I used Mm -hmm. and I still managed to screw that job up. So, like I wasn't even in the, I was, I was 40 miles away from my boss working on my, basically my own schedule and I still managed to get fired from that contract. Like <laughs> yeah. it was just really, really bad. Yeah. Cause I was a mess. And it was mm-hmm. obviously apparent to everybody that I was a mess. Mm. Um, so I had that contract for a little while. Then I was off that. Uh, you know, I was employed on and off and collecting unemployment when I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was, it was a, a bad situation. Uh, it was also a really, in one way, great situation for me because one thing that being on unemployment afforded me was an opportunity to see what it would be like not to work a regular nine-to-five schedule, which was actually a revelation that I sort of put a pin in and carried forward with me into my life. Mm-hmm. Turns out that I'm like I, that kind of structure doesn't work well for me. I'm a very hard worker, but I just don't prefer like a, like a constrained work environment like that. Mm-hmm. I'm not much of a factory worker, right. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so. By 2004, uh, here's the scene. So I got sober on June 20th, 2004. By 2004, I was in a 
badly alcoholic relationship with tons of drugs in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's what you a do. A romantic relationship. A romantic with a relationship mm-hmm. with a partner, yeah. And that's what you and do. And you both used and did and drank. Oh, yeah. And yeah. we really like escalated that with each other. We would egg each other on, you know. Mm-hmm. It was like if one person wasn't the one with the bad ideas, the other one would be. So we kind of like were two forces being stronger than yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, and we were both accelerating in pretty bad uh, alcohol and drug patterns, mm-hmm. you know, and with each other. Um, I wasn't really working. I was mostly collecting unemployment. Uh, and so this alcoholic, this really bad relationship, it was a, it was a relationship with a wonderful person. Right. It's the alcoholism that was in the relationship that made it like bad. Right. Like, th- right. This person and I actually have an unbelievable relationship now. Like it's a really good relationship. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're dear friends. Yeah. Uh, still to this day. Um, but you know, we started this by trying to be a couple, like, but really we were just like, like looking for a co-conspirator right, more right. than anything, yeah. you know? Uh, and it was a volatile relationship as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, I can be a fiery person when I'm not sober. Hell, I can be a fiery person <laughs> when I am sober. <laughs> like I've only ever known you sober yeah. and you're fire. I'm fiery. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she is too, you know, uh, I'm a Scorpio. Uh, she is a, uh, Taurus. I believe, uh, bullheaded to to my vituperativeness. (laughs) Um, you know, it's a, it was a, it was, it was an exciting combination. (laughs) Um, but you know, we had this really bad situation where like we had gone down to visit her mom for like mother's day or something down in Santa Cruz. And we had Mm. gotten day drunk and doing that. And then we drove back home. I drove us back home up highway one blind drunk at night. Mm -hmm. Uh, we had a fight in the car, like a punching and hitting fight while driving in the car. I pulled Mm -hmm. up to the side of the road. Uh, she went to do a dramatic, I'm running off into this field only it wasn't a field. It was an embankment, but there was like stuff growing down in, the like gully thing and the level of it like the trees or whatever came up to the road and it looked like a field at oh night no. yeah uh and so she tumbled down this hill into a patch of poison oak mm-hmm. uh and then like we got back home and you know like eventually patched things up and and got into bed to spend the night together thereby you know in snuggling whatever like getting poison oak all over one another oh no it was such a bad situation and so then uh we had to go get treated for that and so what do they give you to get treated for that prednisone right it's a steroid which of course if you're doing drugs or whatever like really makes you much more agitated and aggressive than you would be so a couple days later we had the kind of fight where she ended up breaking a piece of furniture over me like physically over me. You know what I mean? Is that when your relationship ended? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it was a low point. What happened then is I called the cops on her and they took her away on a 5150 hold. Like that's when they take you away for a 72-hour yeah. psych evaluation, mm-hmm. in case anyone who's listening doesn't know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I correctly assessed that that wasn't a safe place for me to be anymore, that living arrangement. Mm-hmm. And so I moved my stuff all out into storage. Mm-hmm. I already had a storage facility and I barely had any belongings. So I just moved what I had into storage. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was kind of homeless. Right. Like I didn't have a home and I like didn't have the wherewithal at all to like figure out how to get a home for myself. Also, my credit rating was in the toilet. Yeah. Like. I could have gotten a roommate situation, but I just didn't have my act together enough mm-hmm. at all. And also I was wasted all of the time and not showering regularly and just like, I would not have been able to probably get a real right. good living situation. So right. all of a sudden I like just didn't really have a living situation. Uh, and this lasted for like a couple of weeks and mm-hmm. it was 
kind of scary, yeah, honestly. I, I mean, it was like an upscale homelessness. I had a big car. I had an old like 1975 taxi. I could literally stretch out in the back seat almost all the way. Mm -hmm. So I could sleep in that. But like sleeping in your car in San Francisco is not a safe thing to no. do at all. Yeah. Uh, but I was doing that sometimes. Sometimes a friend would let me crash on their couch and take a shower. Mm -hmm. uh, but my friends mostly didn't want me around that much because I was really a mess all of the time, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I had a warehouse uh, that I could sleep in sometimes, like a warehouse art space kind of thing where I could sleep on a beanbag sometimes. Like I could patch together sleeping situations, yeah. but it was really, really scary. Yeah. Like not having a place that that you can ground yourself in, not oh, having yeah. a home base. Uh, like, listen, people, if you're listening to this and you have thought to yourself, I wonder if that would be exciting in a romantic kind of way. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's really terrifying. Like, I imagine there is some sort of theoretical element of freedom to it, but my experience of it was not that it was freeing in any way, but that it actually felt very uh, very limiting, very constricting, and just constantly scary. Like, I just constantly had to, like... I had to keep my belongings accounted for at all times. I couldn't just, like, wander... I couldn't leave things places because right. I didn't have a... I didn't have a house. I didn't have a place to leave them. Right. I could lock things in my trunk, but, like, for, like, your most prized stuff you don't even want to leave it in your trunks you're kind of carrying all of your stuff with you all of the time like mm -hmm. the most important stuff mm -hmm. um you know it's just it's a really bad scary feeling and like you know i had like an over-the-shoulder like courier bag type of thing that i could carry all of my like most necessary and essential things with but like even still just like what if someone robs you what if some like having all of your most important stuff physically on your person is not a good feeling when yeah. you're out in public. Like yeah, everything yeah. just feels dangerous and fraught. Yeah. Um, you feel very, very vulnerable all of the time. I felt mm -hmm. physically vulnerable, mm -hmm. you know, to mm -hmm. strangers. Uh, I felt very paranoid and scared about what other people might do to me. Like I just, especially at night, I was mostly a creature of the night and like the people you encounter at night are on average more dangerous than the people you encounter during the day because mm -hmm. <laughs> they're people like me. They're mm -hmm. people like I was at that time, mm -hmm. you know, um, I was not a, you know, accost you in the street and take your stuff type of person. But those people who were those type of people, they were my people. They were people like me. Mm. I was one of them. Mm. I recognized that in myself. And that was a terrifying feeling, mm. you know. I had a lot of moments of clarity in those last couple of weeks. Really recognizing myself for what I was and for where I was. Mm. You know, it's really, it was for me impossible uh, in that little time not to see myself for what I was. Mm. It was a very upsetting, demoralizing, very sad feeling mm. because it was really not how I viewed myself at all. You know, mm -hmm. it's not the kind of person I saw myself on the inside as being. You know, everyone's, a, we're always a hero in our own story. Yeah. Everyone is on an epic journey yeah. in their life and you are the hero of your journey. Everyone listening to my voice right now, you are the hero of your own journey, right? Yeah. You're not a bit player in someone else's narrative. <laughs> you're, you're, it's your narrative, mm -hmm. you know? And in my narrative, I too, like I was supposed to do good things with my life. Everyone is, right? Aren't we mm -hmm. all? And I clearly wasn't, mm -hmm. you know? I clearly was not in a place where I was, contributing anything positive in any way to society at large, to any individual person's life. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was keenly aware of that. Mm -hmm. I was really uh, I was really depressed about it. I was really demoralized. And it was a different feeling uh, of demoralization than I had had before because there was an mm -hmm. element that felt like maybe I was starting to give up a bit, you know? Mm. The no longer having an, a, a, an indoors place to live... Uh, 
it changed things for me in a way. Like it, it made me really feel like that maybe the end was coming. Oh, wow. You know, mm -hmm. it really felt like a marker and not in a good way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I, I kind of was heading to this point in my life where I really felt like something's going to change here and it's probably, and it's probably not going to be good. Yeah. You know, um, but I'd reached a weird kind of acceptance, you know, like I wasn't really doing much. Like I didn't really, I didn't have a job anymore. I didn't have uh, really much, I didn't have much of a source of income. I had started doing live sound. Mm -hmm. I started doing live sound about five months before I got sober. I was working occasionally mm -hmm. in it. I was just starting out. Uh, I was working, you know, at, you know, when, when I could get gigs and it's just, it's piecework, right? It's day work. So if you get a shift, then you work an eight hour shift and you get paid, I was getting paid 10 bucks an hour. You get paid $80. Right. Um, for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you get paid a hundred. Those are the good shifts, mm -hmm. you know? Not much money though. Not much not money. Not anything to change your circumstances. No, not at all. Enough to occasionally buy drugs. Like certainly couldn't get cocaine anymore, but I could get meth, you know, cause it's much, much cheaper in terms of like the, the, the bang for your buck. So I was only doing that at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't drink any kind of anything good, but I could get rot gut, uh, hard liquor, you know? Uh, pop off vodka or like just the kind of stuff that when you go into a liquor store, it's right behind the, ca the cash register, you know, because it's the stuff that gets people, people like me come in the most frequently to get. And the guy just wants to be able to reach around without moving and grab <laughs> it. You don't want to have to walk 10 feet to get this when you're doing it, you know, a hundred times a shift, mm -hmm. you know, that's all the cheapest stuff is always right behind the person at the mm -hmm. register. And it was that stuff, you know, um, just rock gut, bad stuff. Um, you learn quickly that it's all things, all things being equal, it's better just to get vodka uh, because it does the least amount of damage on the way down. You know, the whiskeys and stuff are much, feel much more damaging, at least they did to me. Hmm. And I was a whiskey drinker, but when it came time for the cheap stuff, it was just vodka. Because hmm. <laughs> like it, it just, it caused the least amount of intestinal and gastrointestinal damage. Hmm. Um, you know, so that's, that's kind of where I was at. That's what my existence looked like. I would wake up wherever I was waking up in the back of my car, uh, in some, sometimes some stranger's home, um, sometimes a home of somebody I knew, sometimes a warehouse. Uh, if I had any more alcohol, I'd immediately drink it. If not, I would immediately go get some and just at least get a little something in my belly just to just to put myself back into that mode because the way I was feeling when I felt, when I, what I was feeling when I woke up was just, unbearable. Mm -hmm. I absolutely couldn't bear it. And so I just needed not to feel like that. Mm -hmm. And then I would just drift through my day. You know, I wasn't even at a point where I was trying to get into those extreme adventures anymore that had characterized like the right. beginning of like my super hardcore alcoholic journey. There right. was, there was no more excitement to it anymore. There was no more adventure. There was no more weird romantic kind of living on the edge, Hunter S. Thompson kind of vibe about right. it. It was just depressing and the days were long. Mm. I was cold a lot. Um, uh, that's a memory I have of that time, just not being able to get warm. When you spend a lot of your time outside, like it's just hard to get warm. Like you can get mm. cold on your inside in a way that's hard to change. Yeah. You know, mm. I remember being just cold a lot. Um, you know, and I didn't have much to do. Like there's not, like days are long when there's nothing to fill them with, you know. Mm. Uh, I, if I could get some drugs, I would do them. But even then, I didn't have much to quote unquote do. You know, there was no activity to occupy myself with once I was high. I was just high. 
And then like meth was really like a double-edged sword because then I just wouldn't sleep for one, two, three days at a time. And like it was, before that was the best thing because I would just you know, have more time to drink is how I would say it, you know? Mm. But it was really just like more time to contemplate my existence. Mm. And it was not good. It was not a good existence. Mm. But I, knew how to, I didn't know how to change it. So one day, a, uh, a Saturday... I was I was in the warehouse uh, that I was able that I was spending some time at. The reason I was spending some time there is because it was an artist collective, and I had a I had a space there, you know, with my music stuff. I wasn't in any space to focus on doing any, doing music. I would poke at my gear sometimes, but I had no drive. Right. I had no musical focus, no ability to like really engage with that at all in any productive way. I would just sit there uh, and do drugs mostly. Is what I would do. Yeah, I was doing that uh, one. Uh, Saturday, it was Saturday morning. It was like 10 in the morning and I had been up from the night before just like doing drugs and like just dicking around on the, my music computer, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I got a call and it was from that girlfriend, mm-hmm. the one from whom I had been estranged at this point for like two and a half, three weeks, something like that. Can't remember exactly, but somewhere around that amount mm-hmm. of time. And it was like 10 in the morning and she was like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, like, hi, how are you? What are you doing? You know, and I was you know, finishing off the drugs and, and alcohol that I had, you right. know. She's like, can I come over? And I was like, sure. And so she came over. I, and I hadn't seen her in this whole time since mm-hmm. like the cops took her away, you know. Yeah. Um, so she, what had happened with her uh, in that interceding time mm-hmm. is that like she had gotten out of that psych hold and, and she had gotten sober. Mm. Uh, she had gone She had gone to AA. She had just like sort of surrendered and been like, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to try this. Mm-hmm. And at that point, she was like two, two and a half weeks sober. Wow. I know. And so, you know, it was 10 in the morning and she was coming out of a yoga class, you know? <laughs> uh, like she and I used to never get up before noon and here she was having clearly gotten up at like eight to get something in her belly and go to yoga and like she was out of yoga and she looked amazing, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed because that's how you look when you're no longer drinking and doing drugs. <laughs> the change is immediate, you yeah. know what I mean? And yeah. it's, it's palpable and obvious. Uh, and, you know, so she came over and she's like, well, okay, you're clearly a wreck. How about you finish doing whatever it is you're doing here? <laughs> she was very gracious about it. I remember it very specifically. That's exactly how she phrased it. <laughs> how about you finish doing whatever you're doing here? <laughs> it was clearly obvious to both of us that what I was doing was yeah. dr- drugs and drinking. Yeah. You know, that's all I was doing, smoking cigarettes, passing time. Um, and she's like, you, you probably, you clearly need a shower. You probably need a meal. So whenever you're done doing what you're doing here, how about you come by my house and you can take a shower and I'll make you dinner. And if you, if you'd like to, you can spend the night. And I was at the end of my rope, you know? So I was like, okay, I'll do that. And so, you know, I spent more time. I I finished, you know, the drugs I had, (laughs) Yeah. you know, and I might've even laid down for a nap. I don't remember, but like I showed up at her place late afternoon, you know? And she made me dinner, you know, and I had taken a shower. It was really nice. And, you know, it was kind of like we just watched some TV or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it was getting to be like 11 p.m., something like that. And she's like, okay, so here's the deal. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to be getting up and I'm going to be going to an AA meeting because that's what I do now uh, on Sundays, mm-hmm. you know, because the next day was just a Sunday. Turns out she was doing it every day. But she's like, that's what I do now on Sundays is I get up and I go to a meeting. And if you'd like to come with me, like you don't have to, but if you'd like to, to come with me to keep me company, I will buy you brunch afterwards. <laughs> and I wanted brunch. Yeah. <laughs> like I really did. Like I hadn't had a good meal. Like yeah. aside from one she had just fed me. Yeah. I hadn't had a good breakfast in, I mean, months and months. Yeah. You know? Uh, and it really sounded nice. And just spending time with her was feeling really nice and safe and good, mm-hmm. you know? Because, you know, as soon as you take away the drugs and alcohol, she's an amazing person. Yeah. You know, it's great. Um, 
And so that's how I went to my first AA meeting uh-huh. is I literally got tricked into it by an offer of brunch. Yeah. Like, like most, like most animals, I am food motivated, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and I did that. Uh, and I remember it very, very, very vividly. Like, uh, like every, every single thing about it. I remember I, I could go into the room where it was held right now. I know exactly what room in the house. It was a sober house. It was a sober living house. Okay. On, uh, on Lower Hate. Uh, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to say that it was maybe on Page Street, not Hay Street. I honestly can't remember that detail. I don't remember if I saw the house, but it was like right the first half block, uh, you know, west of Divisadero, just going up the hill into the Hate there. And it's just this big old Victorian sober living house, the kind of mm-hmm. thing that's been painted a million times, not super well, you know. Mm-hmm. It was like pink. It, it was like mauve. It was not unlike the colors in our house <laughs> when we moved. Actually, that's a really weird detail. But in my memory, I think it was very similar to the colors of the house that we now live in when oh, we moved funny. in. Like darker mauve with like uh, like almost maroon like accents, you Funny. know, like a red on red, but like not exactly red kind of color scheme. Very San Francisco, very offbeat. Um, and it was like, you'd walk in the door as the for, for first room into the right. I remember how the tables were laid out. I remember where I was sitting at the table. I remember mm-hmm. every single thing about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, still very vividly. And I've got a poor memory, but I, I remember this indelibly, <laughs> you know? It just got imprinted in me. Uh, and so... The structure of a 12-step meeting, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know, uh, there's just all this, there's all this routine to it. There's just stuff that gets read at the beginning and at the end of every meeting. It's just like, it's boilerplate. It's not unlike our podcast, how we always start with the same order of things and we always end in the same way. It's the exact same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just a structure about it. Uh, and one of the first things they do in any meeting is they ask any newcomers who are there just to raise their hands and identify themselves so they can be of service to them. And for a reason that I still don't understand to this day, I rose my hand. Mm-hmm. I, I raised my hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't know why I did. I had no intention of doing that. I had every intention of getting that brunch and mm-hmm. maybe getting something to drink. Yeah. You know. Uh, I, I imagined for myself that I couldn't make a change, but something inside of me that I wasn't aware of or in control of had had a different idea about that. Mm. You know, and my hand went up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and I didn't even really know what to do. And I just said, I, I'm Jamie, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I might've identified as an alcoholic. I can't remember whether I did that in that mm-hmm. moment or not. Mm-hmm. Cause that's what usually, usually you usually say, I'm, my name is Jamie and I'm a, an alcoholic. I might not have even been able to say that out loud in that time. I don't really remember. Right. You might, even, might not have even known that that's what, people will do at a meeting because he hadn't been... Yeah, I mean, there were other people doing it. Oh, I see, okay. You know, I would have heard, I wasn't the first. Got it, You know, got it. Uh, I wasn't the first person to raise my hand. Uh, so I, I don't remember how that part of it went down, but I did that, Yeah. you know? Um, and that was the beginning of this journey that I've been on now for the last, like, uh, excuse me, the last, like, 17 years, uh, you know, four months and five days. <laughs> um, and you know, it's funny they they talk in AA. So there there was so I had to get used to all of this new stuff, like because it's 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 something new. And when you start doing something new, especially something like that, like you've got to really like get up to speed pretty quickly. It's just like you got to learn a bunch of new stuff. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like starting a new job. You know, when you start a new job, like the first couple of weeks are really like, like everything is coming at you. Everything's new. You're just trying to take it all in. You're trying to learn it. You're screwing things up. You're trying to, trying to figure out how to yeah. do it. It's, it's exactly like Onboarding. that. Onboarding. <laughs> Onboarding. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I took to it immediately. Uh, I saw it for what it was, which was like a life preserver. I felt like I was drowning. Yeah. And I felt like someone had thrown me a life preserver and I just reached my hand up and grabbed it. Mm -hmm. That's literally the only thing I did. Everything else I did is I was just following directions, you know, and I really want to lean on that idea for a second. Mm. Um, I think that people have this idea that getting sober is really hard, that you have to, like it's something that you have to invent yourself, that it's something mm. you have to figure out yourself. It's absolutely not the case. <laughs> Literally, all you have to do is keep showing up and do what people tell you. <laughs> it, do what the sober people tell you. <laughs> it could not be easier. Yeah. It couldn't be easier. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny, like, this is not a hard concept for us to grasp in other areas, right? Like if there's somebody in our lives who's really great with money and you want to learn how to invest, you just go to that uncle or whatever who's great at investing and you're like, hey, can you teach me how to invest? And you do what they, you do, what they do. You do what they tell you. Right. And they teach you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's not a difficult concept, but I think that because like- Or when you get sick, you go to the doctor and the doctor's like, do this, this, take this and do that. Yeah. And you're like, okay. Mm-hmm. And then you get better. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you don't have like delusions that maybe you have better ideas. No, or that you have to learn medicine. Right. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. You don't have to learn how to be a doctor. You just have to go to a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the exact same thing. Like Mm -hmm. you don't have to learn how to make people sober. You just have to go where the sober people are and do what they're doing. Yeah. Just watch and learn and follow, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's, they make it, they couldn't possibly make it easier. Mm. You just go and you do it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's all it is. Um, the it's funny there there were some small speed bumps you had this experience too you've already talked about this the whole higher power thing you know yeah so there's this thing uh, you know in twelve steps where you like you're asked to acknowledge the idea that there is a power greater than yourself in the world mm-hmm. you know and they call that God and in all the literature and stuff they just refer to it as as God and if you are like me you know like a dyed in the wool atheist you know with some serious issues about how you know religion has manifested itself culturally over the last I don't know a couple thousand years yeah. <laughs> um, you know that's that's potentially an issue like yeah. I heard people talking about God and I'm like well, what the fuck is this? Yeah. You know, I want to be sober. I want nothing to do with any ideas about God, you know? Yeah. So like, that's definitely a, that is something I had to come to, I had to get my head out of my, out of my ass about that. Yeah. That's how I now view it, you know? I was bringing a lot of baggage and preconceptions about the word God yeah. that really didn't have anything to do with actually what that word means in that context. Right. It's funny, if you had asked me, you know, in any other context, is language contextual? I'm an English major from like a liberal arts university in the Northeast. Yes, I have a very deep understanding of the idea that language is contextual. You know what I mean? But it was really hard for me to innately like apply that idea to this because it's one of those loaded words. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, that word comes with its whole own baggage around it that's really hard to like divorce yourself from, you know? It's hard to decontextualize the word God. Yeah. Yeah. but, you know, that's that's a very, very early part of the journey that I just had to figure out. Right. Well, and specifically the phrase they use in 12-step is a God of your own understanding. Yes. Which is the key to everything here. And that was an important bit for me as well. Yeah. You know, I had to come to terms with what, what my understanding was going to be of this higher power. You know, for me, it was it ended up being a revelation that was just this, whenever I'm with a group of, another person or a group of people 
who are endeavoring to make themselves better and be better and share with each other and experience something together, that's a, that, there's a power in that moment that is greater than just me. I mean, if you you're just I mean? like literal about it, it's like you're one person yeah. and the thing you're talking about is five people. <laughs> yeah. Five people are greater than one person. That, that's a power greater than myself. Exactly. It's that's how I identified. Literal, easy way. Yeah. My first sponsor. So like... What, my first sponsor told me, think of it like an acronym, G-O-D, Group of Drunks. Yeah. And it's exactly what you're talking so about. So good. That's it. You yeah. know, a bunch of people. I, I clung to that for literally years. Yeah. I have a more nuanced understanding of spirituality now. Yeah. You know, it's like a personalized sort of understanding of it. It's still not like Christian in nature. You know what I mean? It's not a theology. It's a spirituality. Sure. Uh, and that's been wonderful for me to have a chance to evolve that aspect of myself. I had no understanding of spirituality whatsoever before I got sober. Or to get to explore it without fear or baggage. You yeah. Know, hold, yeah. Seriously. Like I just had no framework, mm -hmm. you know, and now I do. And that's nifty. That's been a cool side benefit. Yeah. Um, I just did the stuff they tell you to do. That's all I did. And so here are the things they tell you to do. <laughs> they tell you to, uh, in your first 90 days, go to one meeting per day. They call it 90 and 90. Mm -hmm. uh, go to at least one meeting per day. And honestly, the first like couple of weeks, two, three weeks, uh, my, my, uh, my girlfriend and I, we were going to, uh, we were going to at least one meeting a day. I think in my first week I went to like 15 meetings. Wow. I was going to two to three meetings a day. Yeah. Well, Hey, if you're in the meeting, you're not in the bar. That's exactly or, it. Like getting, Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It was a way to like all that empty time I had in yeah. my day that I had, that I was talking about before. Yeah. This is a way to fill that. Sure. Because every meeting effectively takes a couple hours out of your day. Yeah. The meeting itself is an hour, but you show up a few minutes early to socialize. You stay after to talk. You know, you got to get there and you got to get back. And it's a couple hours, you mm -hmm. know, if you do that two, three times a day, that's four, six hours out of your day. Mm -hmm. And you can string together the in, but you can connect the in-between moments with some other productive stuff. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, so go to a meeting a day. What else do they tell you to do? Get a sponsor uh, as soon as possible, mm -hmm. basically immediately. I had a sponsor. I got a sponsor on my sixth day of sobriety. Awesome. Yep. Uh, I, I, the other thing about going to a meeting every day or more than one is you can like quickly find what meetings appeal to you the most. Because like just different meetings attract different groups of people. Yeah, you know? different flavors. Mm -hmm. It's like older people or younger people or LGBTQ specific meetings or like whatever. There's mm -hmm. so many different flavors. There's yeah. speaker discussion meetings. There's speaker only meetings. There's big book meetings. There's so many. And, and there's other niche, like literature based mm -hmm. meetings. Like there's so many different kinds of literature in A and they have meetings around all of them, you know? <laughs> um, it's really, really cool. There's, there's like step meetings where it's like you focus on the first step. We're, today we're focusing on step one. You yeah. know what I mean? We're just going to base our discussion around that. Mm -hmm. There's so many different kinds of meetings. And you can figure out like what is appealing to you, what you like. And usually it's like a mixed diet. Like you, For me, like I ended up going a lot to this meeting called High Noon. Mm -hmm. um, good pun, because get it, we used to get high a lot. Right. Uh, and the great thing about it, this being San Francisco and everything just being a little off, it was called High Noon, but it started at 12.15, <laughs> which is... It's not high noon, people. Come on. I honestly think it's because it gave people an opportunity. Like, if you get your lunch lunch break from your job at oh, noon, yeah. you had 15 minutes to get there. Yeah, cool. You know, I uh -huh. think that's what it was. Because um, you could hear the speaker and leave before the discussion and get back to your job. Yeah, and a lot of yeah. people would do that. Mm -hmm. um, so I that was a good meeting. I really liked that one. Just because it was people like... I felt very, very uncomfortable and self-conscious in meetings with more well-heeled, well-put-together people. Oh. 
Um, you know, especially like in San Francisco. San Francisco has two main groups of people, uh, gay people and wealthy people. Mm. And the the commonality for both those groups, generally speaking, is they're pretty put together. You know, yeah. you walk into a gay meeting, like it's a pretty put together group of people. Yeah. People are like, you dress up to go there. You know, it's like, yeah. it's like black church or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you dress special and you show up. It's like a social occasion, yeah, you know? Yeah. And then like also you'll find lots of meetings more toward like downtown business district, Marina, Knob Hill, mm-hmm. where it's like, it's just wealthier people. And again, much more put together. I felt out of place, like a very sore thumb in, in, in groups mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I felt more comfortable in gay environments because I always have, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, but I felt like I looked kind of like like a street urchin because I kind of did, mm-hmm. you know what yeah. I mean? Um, and so I felt self-conscious about that, but High Noon was full of other street urchins. Uh, uh, it was a lot of previously low-bottom drunks. Mm-hmm. When I say low-bottom, what I mean is like you have to find your bottom, like your low point mm-hmm. before you get sober. And like how low is your low point? That's what refers to how low your bottom is. So when, like, right. when you hear someone described as though they, they were a low-bottom drunk, I was a low-bottom drunk. The behavior that I've been describing, the ways I used to act, it was very low down. Doesn't mean you're good at limbo. No, no. <laughs> how low can you go? Oh, no. <laughs> Take a note on that. That's good. <laughs> How low can you go? Cool. Uh, you know, it was a comforting environment for me because I felt like I was surrounded by people who had experience that I could relate to. Yeah. I heard my own story a whole lot in the yeah. shares at that meeting. Yeah. You know, and it was really remarkable for me in that time to see the types of people from whom, from whose stories I got solace. Mm-hmm. Like there was a guy at that meeting, I'm sure he's still, he's still around, uh, you know, San Francisco AA. Uh, he, he's a, an inspirational figure in AA in San Francisco. His, mm-hmm. his name was, he got his name legally changed to Lord Ha. <laughs> L-O-R-D, Lord Ha. Okay. He was completely tattooed, including all of his face and head. Um, like he looked like something out of a prison nightmare. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like a combination of like prison and Halloween. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was the gentlest, most articulate, like soft-spoken person. And he had such a wealth of sobriety information and like ideas and thoughts. Mm-hmm. He had long-term sobriety already at that point. And he was so good at communicating it mm-hmm. and the passion he had for it and how bad it was for him before and the changes he made and what good they had brought to his life, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and to, to see people like that being of service, like intentionally being of service mm-hmm. and realizing how much I could learn from people who looked like the only thing I would get from them was maybe a beating. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like it was really informative to me. Yeah. I was so judgy in previous phases of my life. You just look at somebody and like you judge them, you know? And right. these days I tend to feel very charitably. I kind of judge in a different way, which is, I don't know if you're judging in a positive way. Is that any less bad? I don't know. <laughs> um, but like I look another at- Another discussion, another day. <laughs> I know, right? But I, I look at people like that these days and I just feel like a simpatico, mm-hmm. you know? I feel mm-hmm. like they're my people, yeah. you know? Uh, people who wear their struggles outwardly in that mm-hmm. way, you mm-hmm. know, I tend to feel like I really relate to. Because mm-hmm. um, I used to too, you mm-hmm. know, in a different way. Um, it was 
a really inspiring experience. You know, uh, High Noon was a speaker discussion format. So the the way that works is like you do the preamble stuff, all the stuff I was talking about. You read the steps. You know, someone read this, someone read that. You know, identify the newcomers, blah blah blah. And then a speaker speaks, usually for about 22 minutes. You know, uh, and that's just someone who the secretary of the meeting has invited to share their experience, strength, and hope. Mm-hmm. What I'm essentially doing in my shares, and what you've been doing too, just like much more condensed. Right. You right. know, instead of like three 45 minute long chunks, it's one 22 minute long thing. Right. Right. Um, and then, you know, there's a small break during which you can, you know, go pee, get a cup of coffee, whatever. And then there's discussion, which is just like you raise your hand and, you know, you can just like share things that were, that you were inspired with hearing the mm-hmm. person talk. You know, mm-hmm. you try to like tie it back to the share. Um, and it was great for me because I got to hear so many different people speaking mm. about like what their experience was. And what was so revelatory for me was how much of the time I heard other people telling my story. Yeah, It was so powerful for me to understand that what I was dealing with, I wasn't dealing with in a vacuum, that I wasn't alone or unique in this experience, right. that I was a normal person dealing with things that other people mm. had dealt with. Mm. That feeling of abnormality that I had mm. all throughout my life that I was just trying to run away from, just trying to outpace, just trying to trying to change. Mm-hmm. I realized I didn't need to change and I didn't mm. need to run away from. I could just embrace it and I could just understand that it was just a natural part of being a human being on this planet. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That I wasn't a freak, that I wasn't an outsider, that I wasn't an outcast, that I wasn't defective, that I wasn't broken irreparably in some way. Like I just assumed I was. That that like the stuff I was dealing with is stuff that people have dealt with forever. Yeah. And that also we can help each other. And we can deal with those things in ways that don't destroy us. No, but rather indeed lift ourselves up and empower ourselves. You know, I mean, people know me now, like a lot of people know my sobriety journey and they, I think people understand that like the work I've had to do around sobriety has made me a much more powerful and better person. Yeah. You know, like it's actually turned into an asset for me. Yeah, for sure. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, all of this, I was learning all this kind of in real time. They say to get a sponsor, what you do, it's just like, don't, don't be precious about it. But like in the first week, like, when you hear someone who 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 you relate to, who like you you hear them tell your story, like you hear them talking about their experience in a way where you're like, oh, I really relate to that a lot. Just ask them to be your sponsor. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah, that's all you got to do. And I heard this guy speak, and so after after he spoke after that meeting, I like went up to him and was like, would you be my sponsor? I was so nervous. <laughs> I bet. It was like asking a pretty girl to the high school dance. You know yeah. what I mean? And he's like, yes, absolutely. And so I just, I dove into my step work. Amazing. I worked it as hard as I possibly could because again, that's something that I had just heard in the meetings mm. was just like, get a sponsor, immediately start working the steps, don't delay, work them as hard as you can mm. and as quickly as you can. Mm-hmm. Like there are definitely some people who like later in sobriety take longer to go through the steps. And I think that can be valuable, taking like a longer perspective on it when you have like longer term sobriety, you know? Like really like consider each step and really like dive deep. Mm-hmm. I think that when you're starting out, getting through them as quickly as possible is the right. smartest possible way to go. Yeah. You just want to like get that in you and get yourself that yeah. relief, you know? I was wondering, uh, I imagine you have a lot, of, a lot to say about the steps and that step work mm-hmm. is that should we be splitting your your in, your your middle section into two as well i imagine yep. that there's a whole lot more meaty stuff i think that to come sounds here. like a smart 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 idea uh, so let's do that. So okay. I'll pause there because that's literally like the the next place awesome. that I was going to go. I will say one thing, a note I had taken that I think ties more to this episode than yeah. I would to next week's. Uh, 
You know, I have, I spent a lot of time today and sometime, you know, in my origin story also talking about how I got to such a low point yeah. that like I couldn't take it anymore. Right. You know, some people never get to low enough of a point that they can't take it anymore. Right. Uh, which I think is one of the real, uh, one of the real sad things that I, I observe around me in my life now as I walk through life as a sober person. Mm. I see people in my life, I'm connected, we're connected with a ton of people on Facebook and I see people, I have people who have reached out to me repeatedly, I mean, for like a decade yeah. now. You know, always struggling, always feeling bad, but like n curious about sobriety, but never willing to, to, more scared of what they would lose by giving up drinking oh. than interested in what they would gain by giving up drinking, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or excited by or whatever, you mm -hmm. know, like it's a judgment call in your mind, right? Like what will I lose by giving up drinking and what will I gain? And mm -hmm. like, if those scales don't balance out on the right side for you, mm -hmm. you're not going to do it, right? you know? And something that can really make them balance out well is having a really, really low experience. Right. And the people, honestly, who I feel almost like the worst for in this kind of way are people who have a low-grade addiction or like a maybe high-grade addiction, but one that never manifests itself super negatively in the external circumstances of their lives. Right. Like they hold their job. They've got a good paying job uh, with a lot of flexibility. They can do a lot of travel. They have a loving partner. They have kids who adore them. And also they're dying inside every day mm. and they don't know how to change it. And they are constrained perhaps by the circumstances of mm. their very successful life to a point where they don't feel like they can upset that op apple cart. Like they can't make any change. Right, right. You know? Or uh, the, the, those, the positive things that they're still experiencing in their lives perhaps mask yeah. or, or justify the idea of, no, actually I don't have a problem yeah. because look at all these good things that that are in my life. Whatever I'm doing is working. Yeah. Yep, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. When they're really, by making that choice, they're robbing themselves of, of, of getting to do work that maybe, that, would, that might really bring them a lot of transformation and fulfillment and like- And joy. And a new life that would be even better than the, the little moments of good that they had yeah. previously. Yeah, like you don't have to undergo a wholesale, like- all of your life, 360 yeah. degrees transformation like I did. I was forced into that kind of transformation because I had gotten to such a disconnected, untenable place in yeah. my personal experience. Yeah. But I really want to, the point I want to make here mm. is that if someone's listening to this and they're going, well, you know, I feel sometimes like I have a problematic relationship with alcohol, but, 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 but I'm not Jamie's, living in my car. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Jamie is an, Jamie's an alcoholic. I'm not like that. Right, right. Like, right. you know, I, I live in a really nice house. I've got a great job. I've got a family who loves me. My relationship is good. Everything's good. So I'm fine. Right. I really want to encourage, like, if there's anyone who's listening to this and, you know, and I've just described your situation. It's okay to feel like you have a problematic relationship with alcohol, even if the external circumstances of your life are all very good. Right. It's about your internal journey. Yeah. It's not about how it looks from the outside. Right. Right. It's how about, it's about how you feel. Yeah. And that's really the only thing that matters. And I just would really like to encourage anyone, like if you're listening to this and you're, questioning whether you have a problematic relationship with alcohol in your life. I mean, first of all, if you're questioning it, you probably do. That's mm -hmm. my experience. Mm -hmm. If you're even in a place where you're asking that question, the answer is pretty much always yes, mm -hmm. you know? So that could be a shortcut for you. That could be something to explore. Mm -hmm. But if you would like to explore it with somebody in a more intentional way, just talking about it, mm -hmm. I'm here for that. Mm -hmm. You can email me. I'm at jamie at misfitstars.com. If you would rather talk to a woman, you can talk with Shannon, shannon at misfitstars.com. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, I don't have an experience with alcoholism that's in right. particular, but I do have an experience with recovery that's right. uh, in, uh, from codependency. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that that little comment is more tied to this episode, but all of the rest of the stuff, the step stuff, I think would be good to get into specifically next week. Awesome. I yeah. can't wait. Let, honestly, that's the juicy stuff that I'm really excited for. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just be on pins and needles until next week. Uh, right on. To hear all that good stuff. Cool. Yeah. Well, hey, people, uh, thank you. I recognize that this episode has gone a bit long. Uh, I don't always, in a share format, like, I mean, you just heard me describe a typical AA share. It's usually like 22 minutes, right? It means a lot to me to be able to drill down with more specificity Mm. on what my experience was, only because I tend to feel, all things being equal, that the more specifically you can describe a situation, the more someone else has the ability to take it on board. Sure. And that's my hope. That's why I've gone along with this. Mm. Thank you for sticking with me uh, and with us through this long episode. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, sure. So we'll be back next week with... uh with what we're going to pick up with your story mm-hmm. as you did step work mm-hmm. and what what happened then. What happened? What did, indeed. Can't wait. Listeners, thank you so much for being here with us. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we'll be back again, you know, next week with this continuation of this discussion. Um, there's not much else going on this week, but in the meantime, between now and next time we, we interact with you, I, I hope that you take care of yourselves and... Please be good to each other. Yeah, we love you all. We'll see you soon. Bye.